Welcome to another episode of Proud Rev, a podcast series looking at current events and social issues from the perspective of the progressive utilization theory, or Proud. I'm your host, Dada Veda Pragyananda. This week we are looking at the broad topic of criminal justice, which I would like to reframe as building a proper correctional system. Joining me on this podcast are two guests, Nada Carter from White Plains, New York, who is the coordinator of Westpac, the Westchester People's Action Coalition, and Vidyesha, who will be phoning in from a prison in Florida where he is an inmate. But before I invite Nada and Vidyesha to give their perspectives on this issue, I would like to begin with a short account of my recent encounter with the criminal justice system. Uh, this summer, I was summoned to jury duty and served on the trial of a young man who was charged with several counts of illegal possession of firearms. The defendant had a previous felony conviction and was not allowed to have any firearms at all. As the trial unfolded, it turned out that the young man did not actually own any guns. He was living with his girlfriend, who was a member of the armed services, I think it's the army, and the guns were in her name, and she was allowed to have them. However, detectives who raided the home, um, based on some tip-off, found his fingerprints and DNA on some of the guns. The prosecuting attorney argued, very angrily, I might add, that the forensic evidence showed that the defendant had constructive, this in quotes, constructive possession of the guns, meaning that he had the power and intent to exercise control over the guns. When the jury went for deliberation, most of the members were convinced by the state's argument, though I was skeptical, as was one other member of the jury. Finally, after some time, we agreed that the evidence only could support one count of conviction. I might add that the defendant is biracial, and there is also cannabis possession involved in this whole affair, though the jury, we the jury did not know this um, at that time. But even without knowing this fact about cannabis, I had the hunch that the whole affair is connected with the war on drugs. In any case, the conviction on one count of gun possession was read out in the court. And a few days later, I read in the newspaper that the young man will, will be sentenced sometime later, not yet, to three to 14 years in prison for this offense. This is the possible sentence, three to 14 years. And I was shocked by this and wrote to the judge saying that this young man had a messy lifestyle, no doubt, but he doesn't need a long prison sentence. Rather, he needs education, counseling, and job training. And my stance is really based on the views of Pierre Sarkar, the originator of Prout, who in his book, Human Society, he wrote the following. If a system of correction, corrective measures is introduced, criminals, whether they were deeply involved in the crime or not, will have no reason to complain against anyone. Although there may be flaws Flaws in the argument, it will not harm them in any way. A person who is definitely guilty will benefit from a system of corrective measures, 
And even a person who is not guilty will benefit from such a system. But I think that this defendant and others like him will be harmed rather than helped by our current system. And on this note, I would like to invite Nara, who has a wealth of experience with social justice issues, to give her perspective. Sure. Thank you so much, Dada, for inviting me. Um, my name is Nada, and I've been working for a social justice organization for the past 20 years in Westchester County, New York. It's the county just north of the Bronx. Um, and a big, big subject for the entire social justice community in the state of New York is our criminal justice system, because it's riddled with injustice, as Dada was just alluding to, and now Dada has firsthand uh, knowledge about the, our system, to having served as a juror. Um, so if we look at the big picture for the United States, we have one of the leading numbers of people who are incarcerated in the industrialized world. We have 2.2 million people. And if we look at, well, who are we locking up in these prisons across the United States? They are overwhelmingly uh, people of color, overwhelmingly African-American um, and Latinx. Uh, so, and we always say in our community here that, for example, drug possession. We know that white people are using drugs at the same rate as African-Americans, as black people. And yet the African-Americans are overwhelmingly the ones who are entangled by our criminal justice system as a result of their drug use um, to the point of like 90. So who, who in the past five, 10 years has been incarcerated just because of nonviolent drug possession? If we look at the total numbers, it's about over 90% are black who are being heavily penalized for behaviors that white people engage in, but do not uh, suffer the same consequences. And the example that, you know, that Dadaji gave of this uh, person uh, in his area who had his fingerprints, you know, and he's now facing a minimum, it's three years for, of incarceration. You know, how is that going to help anyone when people are forcibly removed? It's very traumatic for their families. Uh, they can no longer work, they lose their employment. It's extremely disruptive. So here in New York State, in the past at the peak, we had over 70,000 people who were uh, serving time in New York State prisons because of advocacy work of organizations like mine, like Westpac and many, many other groups across New York State. We have been aggressively pursuing a policy of de what we call decarceration, removing people from state prisons. And today, uh, at this moment, we have about 31,000 people who are incarcerated. And the news we got uh, from Albany, our state capital, is that six state prisons will be closing uh, next year as a result of a dwindling um, population of people who are incarcerated. And that trajectory is going to continue. Two years ago, we started with bail reform, uh, ending cash bail. And cash bail was a system where, you know, if a judge wanted to guarantee that a person would re return to court, 
he would assess a financial penalty on the person to make sure they return. But what ended up happening is that people who were poor, people who were low income, could not afford uh, a $500 bail, and they had to be detained without even being uh, accused, without even being convicted of any kind of crime, just waiting for their day in court, they were being detained. And so up to 60% uh, of the people that were in our uh, county jails waiting for their trials um, had not been convicted of any crime. They were simply pre-trial detainees, and most of them because they could not afford to pay the bail. So it was a very discriminatory uh, system based on whether one could afford to pay or not, not based on what actually was being alleged as the crime. So we successfully managed to reform the bail laws in New York State. And now we're looking at the mandatory minimums because as Dada G mentioned, um, in the 90, starting in the 1970s, New York was actually one of the first places to institute uh, mandatory minimums where a judge would lose uh, his or her discretion uh, regarding um, you know, the length of time a person would have to serve incarcerated. Uh, and the results have been horrific and they've led to these very large numbers of people being incarcerated. So of the 2.2 million people that are sitting in, in, in prisons across the United States, about half of them are sitting in prison for nonviolent drug offense issues. Um, and in many societies, just simply possessing drugs is not at all considered a crime, but in the United States, it is criminalized. Um, and this is part of what has led to the problem of mass incarceration. Um, so all of these are issues that we're working on. And in 2022, a big focus uh, of our work, and I'll briefly share my screen. Uh, it's a campaign that's called Communities, Not uh, Cages. So we want to eliminate mandatory minimums. We want to ex end extreme sentencing. We want to bring back judicial discretion. And we want to support transformation and bring our loved ones home. Uh, and here is one of our, our posters that we're, and we're organizing digital uh, launch and statewide rallies all over New York State. Um, we're also advocating for clean slate, which is expunging a person's criminal record after the person has served time. What ends up happening in prison is that, let's say in the case uh, of Vidyesha, who we'll, we will hear from uh, afterwards, he's already spent 22 years inside a Florida state prison for robbery. Um, and I'm, you know, that's a lot of time to spend. So when he gets out, in many cases, the uh, burden of the sentencing is carried with a person when they go to apply for housing, when they go to apply for a job. Um, they cannot get rid of this burden of having served time. And we're saying that's absolutely incorrect because what ends up happening is people are being perpetually punished for something that they did um, in a moment of weakness. Uh, and it just, that's not how 
we want to define a person's life. That's not how I would want my life to be defined with the worst thing I ever did in my life. No one would want to be defined by the worst moment in their life. And yet people who uh, leave prison are having to carry this burden. So we're, we're launching this campaign, it's called Clean Slate, where we would expunge and seal the records of people who have um, come out of the prison system, served their time so that they can start fresh and not have the baggage of having been uh, incarcerated for however long they were. The quote that Dada read was, it's a beautiful quote from Prabhat Ranjan Sarkar. Um, and so, you know, and, and he's actually, Sarkar is alluding to the fact that inside our prisons, we have a significant percentage of people who are actually innocent. They did not commit the crime. They did not commit any crime. And yet the court system managed to find them guilty. And so here they are incarcerated. Um, and so Sarkar says in the system that we should build a correctional system, if an innocent person is inadvertently placed into this uh, criminal justice system, that person would benefit because the environment is so congenial. You know, it's sort of like a, 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 what it should be is like a college campus where a person can work on themselves, uh, attend yoga and meditation classes, uh, take academic courses so they have skills and they're ready to go once they finish serving their time. Uh, lots of access to, you know, mental health services if they need them, substance abuse support if they have a substance abuse issue. It's a place where people who are not incarcerated might like to spend a weekend uh, out in the countryside with fresh air, organic vegetable garden, you know, it's transformative. So that's not at all what we have now. If for anyone who's visited these, these um, prisons, uh, I did have a chance to visit recently the uh, juvenile detention center in Westchester County. And it was very depressing. And I said to the people on my tour, you know, if I did not have any mental health issues coming into this facility, uh, I might have mental health issues by the time I leave this facility. Um, and so this is, this is not uh, how it should be. We have a lot of work still to do with transforming our systems. Um, and I think you will all be really interested to please hear now uh, from Vidyesha, who, as I mentioned, he, you know, he's a young man from Florida. He's from an urban part of Florida. And he's spent 22 years incarcerated for a robbery. Um, it's a huge amount of time for him. Uh, he talks about his, you know, the neighborhood he grew up in. It was a tough neighborhood. Uh, he was exposed to all kinds of, you know, unhealthy activities. It was low income, it was a, a poorer area of town, very challenging. And he also talks about the racial bias in the uh, justice system. Yeah, yeah. And on that point, um, one of the things I've noticed about the operations in prisons, when we talk about the infrastructure of the prison system, people have agenda. And it's my opinion that the politicians and the people who run the prisons have an agenda. And I believe it used to be 
rehabilitation, but I'm not getting the impression that it's, it remains to be rehabilitation. My opinion now is more about profit. I think it's turned into a business. Uh, when we talk about reform, from my experience, I have been reformed the most through practicing those Eastern cultures like meditation and, you know, yoga and things like that because it teaches you how to monitor your own attitude and self. I think a lot of the Western forms of rehabilitation gives you intellectual ideas through literature that doesn't have a lot of practices to it. I think it's through practice that we change. And I've learned when I talk about, you know, from my background and a lot of the people around me, a lot of us do have uh, character issues that we, we have developed bad habits from our society and our ways of life. And I really do believe meditation could be a tool used by the government to help reform the attitude of prisoners. I think that's important. It boils down to attitude. A lot of us do have bad attitudes, and those of us who've changed have changed from characters that have had bad attitudes. Yes. And then when you look at the legislation part of the criminal justice system, or I guess that's not the criminal justice system part, that's the legislative branch. The legislative branch doesn't seem to be focusing on laws that give us room to show that we've changed. A lot of the sentences seem to be firm and unchanging and strict and absolute to where when they sentence you nowadays, you usually do most of that time. And if it's a lot of time, even though you may have changed, you stuck with that large amount of time. And they don't consider when they pass these laws that we actually do change. And I've, I've seen, I would agree that most of us have changed, but there are a lot of us who had changed that could prove it. And we're right. not given that opportunity because of these strict laws that they pass in Florida. That's exactly right. And also, Vidyesha, I have to mention that the way the law is implemented is uh, racially biased because everybody knows that black and white folk, they're using drugs uh, at the same rates. And it's almost always the black and brown folk who end up being heavily penalized and being incarcerated for activity that white folk also do but they're not nearly um, incarcerated at the same rate as the black and brown folk. So that's a big focus of, of our work, who, those who are advocating for changes in the um, you know, criminal justice system. It's been implemented in right. a very unfair way. And I, I could testify to that from experience because when I got sentenced, I got sentenced in what they call repeat offender court. I mean, I had two prior felony convictions. And in this courtroom, using the prisoners face more time than a regular courtroom. They got something called a habitualization statute and it's an enhancement sentence. Now, the judge usually doesn't have any discretion in this courtroom. The prosecutor push for enhancement sentence and either the judge agrees to enhance it or not. Well, when I got sentenced, I'll never forget one of the times I went to court, it was a sentence to say, I actually didn't get sentenced on this day, but I think they used this particular day to intimidate me. It was a sentence in phase. They were all of us who were who were in court that they sat in there and they talked about how much time we faced, you know, and a lot of people did get sentenced that day. So I watched sentences got dished out that day. And what I never forget is that I was in the courtroom with about 12 people who had lost trial. And everyone knows when you lose trial in courtroom, you normally get the max. So in, in rock court, the enhancement sentence doubles. If you face 15 years, now you get 30 years. Mm. And they were like, out of, all of the people who lost trial, I think there were, I'm, a, I'm an estimate because I can't remember the exact number, but I remember there were at least 10 black 
defendants, and there was one white defendant, and this white defendant, I think he had a robbery case. No, I'm mistaken. I remember now, he had a second-degree felony. I can't remember the specific, but I'll never forget because he had a second-degree felony, and in Florida, second-degree felony carried a maximum sentence of 15 years. And all of the black defendants that day got the enhancement. They got the enhancement habitual sentence, except that one white defendant, and he got... He got a PRR sentence, was a minimum mandatory of 15 years, but he did not get the habitual sentence, which, and I remember the judge said, I'm not going to sentence him to the habitual sentence, and he got 15 years instead of 30. Wow. With the habitual sentence, he would have got 30 years, but he got the minimum mandatory of 15 years. And I'll never forget that day, because it always stuck in my mind that he was the one person in there who didn't get the habitual sentence, and he was the only white defendant that day. And he was in rock court, so he had priors. All of us had prior felony convictions. And you don't go to rock court unless you got prior felony convictions. And the only thing that stood out to me, which was the difference between him and the rest of us, was his race. And I always mention that to people when I talk about the judicial system, because that's the phase when the judge hand out the system, hand out the sentence, and the prosecutor either not request or request the enhancement sentence. So you're right. We all know. We all know. I think most people would agree that that happens in the courtroom. We, we all know, and this is a huge problem that needs to be addressed immediately. And many of the people who are incarcerated uh, at this moment, you know, we, we have a terrible reputation in the United States. We're like the leading country that incarcerates people. Uh, but, you know, about half the people who are being locked up, they are in there for nonviolent offenses. Uh, they might be right. there just for using drugs or having possession of drugs. You know, in some societies that if, if a person has a substance issue, they send them to treatment, they send them to rehabilitation, they help them with services, they help them with right. training so they can find a job and they help them overcome their addictions if they have a substance abuse addiction. But it's not criminalized the way it's criminalized in this country. And I believe that is influenced by, and I could be mistaken, but a lot of people also believe this, they found a way to profit off the system. Look at what we went through just, you know, to make this phone call with the emails, 39 cent exactly. email. You know, the phone calls, you have to pay, and I probably, we're probably getting overcharged for the prices. And then we had this, this kiosk system where we could buy music. The music probably free in society, but we pay for it. The movies that we could order off this kiosk system, we pay 6 or $7 for movies that they probably getting for free. Wow. So there are a lot of ways they profit with the canteen. We definitely, I believe, there's a system going on. We have the only store on the block. One, one uh, store, one company provides us with canteen, and I question the, the prices that we have to pay. I just don't believe that people out there will pay these prices. And the shoes that we could buy from this company, the little cheap shoes that if we worked out with them and ran around the track for two or three weeks, they, the sole will fall off. Mm. They don't even last. That's you know, terrible. I just was forced to buy a pair because I'm walking around in these crops, and I'd rather walk... I'm going to try my luck with these cheap shoes. But it's been a year and a half I've been holding out for buying these shoes because I just, I feel like I'm extorted to buy them. I don't have a choice. Wow. So, and I'm I wish we could just that. look at how much profit they're making off of. No, it's a terrible, it's a racket, and it's, it's unjust, and it needs very deep transformation. Is there anything the public can do, Vidyesha, to help you with your case? Uh, are, are you going to be eligible for parole? In my situation... They have been proposing. There's actually some politicians in Tallahassee. One of them is Senator Roosin out of Tampa. He has proposed 
He has proposed some bills for the last five years. He's been proposing bills. And one of these bills that he keeps proposing would actually set me free because of the amount of time that I've been in prison and I don't have a murder charge and I've been staying out of trouble. And he's been proposing a bill every year that would put me out on parole, but it hasn't parole, but it hasn't been passed in the Senate. It's been passed in the Judiciary Committee. They agree that it's constitutional. That's what the Judiciary Committee does, I believe. They just look at the legal aspect of these bills. It's passing that, but the Senate, or whatever the part of our legislature, you know, we have two branches. One of the branches, they won't, they won't uh, agree on it on voting. So I'm hoping the day comes, and you know, they have these uh, hearings where the public could go in and, you know, listen to what's being proposed and speak on it. The public does have a voice at these uh, committees, and people can go in and speak on it. And, and, and we can also, we could also send letters of support as well. Right. Okay. So I try to keep track of these bills and, uh, with the little resources I have. And uh, sometimes brothers have their family members send them emails, and they email in the bill, and they pass it around, and here we get to read it. So in that case, I'm hoping that if something like that eventually happens in the courtroom, you know, I've exhausted all my remedies. So unless, you know, sometimes laws change. Things change. Everything changes, especially in the physical realm. You know that. Absolutely. Uh, with your level of spiritual understanding. Uh, I will I will see with my contacts in New York, who, you know, what the situation is in Florida, because people in New York State are working very hard. We have the shameful record of being the ones who started the Rockefeller drug laws with the mandatory minimums. Um, so our agenda for the next legislative session is to abolish uh, mandatory minimums. So judges will have complete discretion. Um, we also want to have people released early for, for good time uh, when they're incarcerated so they can be reunited with families and loved ones as soon as possible. Um, right. So all of this we're going to be working on in, in 2021, in 2022. And we've made some progress with bail reform uh, in New York State, you know, like uh, removing cash bail so that uh, people who don't have the money to pay for bail are not detained pre-trial just because they cannot afford to pay the bail. Um, right. So all of these, you know, we're, we're working hard, and it's a really strong group. And some of the groups in New York State are national organizations. So I'll ask them as well about Florida and if we can... Uh, you know, push and try to accelerate this bill that will be passed in the Senate so that, you know, you, you can get out soon. Yes, uh, that's great. I was just uh, speaking to somebody who's painting the wall. They paint this place, and I'm telling them to go ahead. I'm going to try to stay out of the way. But anyway, one of the problems in Florida with that is over-sentencing. Florida, I believe, has some of the strict enhancement sentences in the country. And they over-sentence people for crimes where no one was really hurt and it may have been some property value you know that was lost and they give out time like property value equals life exactly. so they give life sentences out with no chance of parole over a property and i'm speaking of robbery cases and i acknowledge that uh in these statues they have clause that talk about the fear the fear that is installed in the victim, that is true. But at the end of the day, people change. And I've witnessed it. 
And I think, in, and, and if they believe in any kind of religion, you know, all these religions uh, believe in or talk of mercy and opportunity and forgiveness. And I understand that it has to be balanced. But right. if you're holding a person in prison for a property crime for 30 years, and this person has changed over these 30 years, and it could show his chance, and you believe it's possible that someone could change, there should be room in the sentencing for that to manifest. Absolutely. You know what I mean? Absolutely. 100%. 100%. I, and, and I think that's reasonable. It's more than reasonable. Yeah. And, and we're, we're looking at ways of diverting people to begin with from the system. Like, for example, in your scenario, you grew, grew up in a very tough neighborhood. Um, yes. And you were influenced by what was going on in your neighborhood. And any rational judge should be able to see that and say, the answer to that is not incarceration. If to provide you with opportunities, you know, to, to become more educated, to develop your skills, to develop your ta talents, to find meaningful employment so you can support yourself, support your family. That's, right. That should be the approach. That's what's so frustrating about the system. Yes. And that would be something that could be implemented inside when, it, when it, if the agenda is reform and rehabilitation. Because okay. you know the mentality is the problem, and that could be addressed. But, like I said, it's a question of whether rehabilitation and, and reform is actually the agenda of the people that run these systems. Exactly, exactly. Vidyesha, we're getting close to the end of our 30-minute time slot, so... Um, I'm just really so pleased that we had this chance to speak. Um, I've managed to record you and I'm really grateful. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to share with us before we close? Well, I think I've uh, spoke of the main ideas I've had in mind uh, pertaining to the issues. Uh, I could just say that I really benefit a lot from you know the spiritual path that really helped me uh, transform my inner self and get to know what or who I really am. And it also helps me deal with the pressure of being in here. You know, I can find joy in the mundane activity of being in a cell or whatever I'm doing incarcerated. And I think I've learned that joy or happiness is not doesn't solely need an external dependent. You have one minute remaining. One of the things I learned from this path is that the actual source and dependence from that is within us. We just have to tap into it. So if I can find it in here, I know people out there can find it. And I know I can get out of here and be content and patient. And that, that'll support my view that I could, I could survive with a second chance. That I didn't let anybody down. That is so, so beautiful, Vidyesha. Uh, really, I hope we'll continue to keep in touch, and I will. Yes, I, I will send you the link to the podcast once it's complete. All right. All right, uh, dear dear brother. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time. Namaskar. Yes, you have. A, namaskar. I hope you have a great, great afternoon and evening. Thank you. You too. Take good care. Yes. yes. So thank you for sharing that that um, recording which you made with Vidyesha. And so, would you like to say anything about um, to conclude on that? You know, based on what he has said about what you think has to be done um, going forward. Well, you know, he he touches on several points, and um, 
he talks about how the prison system is based on a profit maximization model, which is really um, inhumane. And, and that's not how a correctional system should be based. So he's, you know, and, and in fact, we now have this uh, phenomenon of private prison systems uh, where that are traded on Wall Street and people are trying to make money investing in these private prison systems. It's really very degrading. So, and Vidyesha speaks about what it's like inside to, you know, purchase uh, a film or go to the, the can't, they have one canteen where they can buy things. It's, it's profit rigged. And even th to make a phone call to him and for him to be able to receive the call and to send him an email, it's all by pay, you have to pay each time. And they, you know, they make it difficult. So he talks about that. One thing that really struck me is um, how critical his uh, spiritual practice has been for him inside a prison. It's very stressful uh, living inside an institution uh, with so many people. Uh, he has to share a room with another person. He, you know, he cannot just go and come as he pleases. Uh, there are all these rules and structures. And, um, and so he talks about how through a meditation practice, uh, he's learned to center himself. He's learned to connect with a deeper part of himself. Um, he's uh, able to find happiness and joy, um, you know, inside his cell. And, and he says at the end, you know, if he can do that sitting in this Florida state prison, then he thinks that anyone, uh, you know, outside the prison walls uh, by learning and practicing meditation can also find this uh, inner sense of peace and equilibrium. So I really appreciate him and I really would like to help because he's uh, more than eligible for parole. And I'm going to try and see if, you know, some of our contacts who are working on national organizations for uh, criminal justice reform, if they can try and help accelerate the process for him uh, to be eligible for parole and to be released uh, back to his family where he belongs. Yeah, we we would all wish that you know, it would be a happy outcome to this um, situation, and for him, and also for the whole society, we, we would wish that that um, these um, new measures could be adopted. You know, where and um, we would have a, a proper system. So, I think on that note, I mean, we can wrap up and conclude. And so, thank you everybody for listening. And um, if you're listening on any kind of platform, you can subscribe and come back again. And if you um, have any questions or comments, um, you can also send an email to us at info at proudalliance.org. And I'd like to mention that this um, whole podcast is sponsored by the Proud Alliance. And you can, you can look us up at proudalliance.org. And another source of good information about progressive utilization is another website. It's the one from um, Europe, proud.info, proudinfo. So both of these uh, websites are excellent um, places to begin to learn more about the progressive utilization theory and what we propose for the um, positive change that we need in this society. So thanks everybody for listening and we'll conclude now and we hope to see you again.